Amen. All right, there are some notes in the back. If you did not get those, you can go pick them up. Uh, If you're joining us online, there is a PDF posted on our website where the newsletter is typically posted. Uh, Hunter has shared information for youth, the D group questions that the youth would normally go through uh, as they have been tracking with us through the life of David. Uh, For those of you who maybe are joining us tonight and you don't normally join with us on a Wednesday night, you're kind of jumping in at the tail end of a study. We've been looking at the life of David and we started months ago back in the fall and we've tracked with the life of David, the story of David all through the fall and Christmas and now into the spring, and we've just got a few weeks left. Tonight we're talking about David and Absalom. So if you have a Bible, it would be great to take it out. And our passage tonight is rather ambitious. It's 2 Samuel 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. So if you get in the neighborhood, that's where we're going to end up. 2 Samuel 13 to 19. Six years ago, 2014, my family was in the process of moving here to Odessa. And in the process of talking with the church and meeting the church, uh, we had several meetings. Some of them were on Skype. Some of them were in person. We had a meeting in Amarillo, and uh, some of them were here at the church. One of those times that I came to visit, uh, I went with the staff, and we went out to eat, and we went to Zucci's. And I ended up at the head of this table, and the the whole staff was there uh, having lunch. And it was sort of a get-to-know-you type lunch. And I ended up right next to, at Zucci's, this guy, Troy Stevenson. And Troy had retired, and he had stepped back uh, from vocational ministry here at the church. But he was still around, and it would be months before he finally actually cleaned his office out. He kind of lingered in his office for a while. But uh, I ended up right next to Troy, and I never met Troy. I didn't know anything about Troy. We sat down at Zucci's, and we ordered our drinks, and we ordered our food. And Troy launched into a story. That doesn't surprise some of you. Troy was a great storyteller. And I was trying to make a good impression on these folks, so I was really locked in on this story. I was paying attention. He's talking about all these crazy scenarios and things that had happened to him and this wild situation. And the story just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. And about 20 minutes into the story, I realize this is not a story. This is a joke. And he didn't tell me that, but the light bulb went off about 20 minutes into it. I realized he's not telling me something that actually happened. This is a joke, and it's not a very good joke. He's going to get to the punchline, and I'm not going to laugh. And, you know, if you knew Troy, you knew he loved to tell you stories. They were usually some sort of joke. In that moment, knowing what Troy was telling me changed the way I listened to what he was saying. When I thought he was telling me a genuine, real-life, crisis situation type story, I was all in, I was enthralled, I was locked in, tuned in. Oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. When I realized it was a joke, I leaned back and said, where's my chicken fried steak? Because I've had enough of this story. This isn't going anywhere. When you know the genre of a discourse, a story, some sort of communication, it changes the way you listen to that story. So we all love stories. That's a common thing among humanity. And 
all the stories that have ever been told really can boil down or be broken down into four different categories. Tragedy, comedy, romance, or satire. Really, any story that you've ever heard falls into one of those categories. Uh, sometimes those categories are combined. In the United States, we pay a lot of money to go see romantic comedies, and we take two of those story types and we mash them together into one. But really, this is all, all that it comes down to when you look at stories. Satire is a type of story that gently, subtly makes fun or makes light of a specific situation and it's not just designed to make you laugh, it's actually designed to make you think and to make a point and maybe to point out or criticize something that you had previously taken for granted. Romance. Obviously, our love stories would fall into the category of romance, but so would most of our westerns and so would most of our space adventure stories or so would most of our superhero stories. Any story where there's some sort of hero that's coming to save the day falls under this big umbrella of a romance story. Comedy. Think about situational comedies, sitcoms on TV. A comedy introduces a relatively small problem to the listener, to the audience, and then by the end of it, through some humorous means, there's a, a resolution or there's some sort of uh, conclusion to that scenario. And then you come to tragedy. In a tragedy, it's not a minor problem that's introduced. It's a major problem that's introduced. When this major problem is introduced, by the time you get to the end of the story, there is resolution, but it's not a quote-unquote happy ending. It's not always the type of resolution that you were hoping for or looking for. And tonight, when we look at 2 Samuel 13 to 19, it's a tragedy. It's a story that presents a very serious problem in David's life. And it's a story that, by the end of it, has resolution, but it's a tragic end to the story. It's not necessarily a happy ending to the story. Eugene Peterson, who we have referred to in this study, uh, brings up this idea of tragedy saying this. He says, I want to go over some old ground here, repeating what seems, in our culture anyway, to need repeating. Entering into a life of faith, living a Davidic life, Following Jesus, centering our life in the worship of God does not exempt us from suffering. Christians get cancer in the same proportion as non-Christians. Believers are involved in as many automobile accidents as non-believers. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, it hurts just as much after you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior as it did before. And for March 18th, 2020, we might add to that list, believers are not immune to things like the coronavirus. Christians are not immune to things like falling oil prices. And in this story, as we look at this episode in David's life and we see the tragic end to it, there's some really important lessons that we can take away. When I knew that tonight was going to be a little bit different, that we would have a smaller group here in this room, we would have a larger group online, many of whom are not always with us. I thought, man, we're in the middle of a study of David's life. We're at the end of the study of David's life. We're talking about David and Absalom. This is some tough stuff that we're going to talk about. Maybe I ought to alter and change what we look at, but it's absolutely perfect 
for the situation we find ourselves in tonight. So let me start, let me give you a little bit of the backstory. If you've been here on Wednesday nights, this is review. If you haven't been with us, this will at least bring you up to speed a little bit. The backstory. In violation of God's design for marriage and for the monarchy, David had multiple wives and concubines. I've given you the verses. We're not going to look them up now. I just want to sort of lay out on the table. In Genesis 2, God gives his people the design for marriage. A man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife, singular, and the two, not the three, the four, the five, the six, the seven, the eight, the 500, the two become one flesh. That's the pattern. That's the design for marriage. In the book of Deuteronomy, God lays out for his people the design for the monarchy. Years before they established the monarchy, he says, look, when you get a king, he doesn't need to stockpile a lot of money. He doesn't need to take comfort in a big, powerful army. And he doesn't need to marry many women. David, knowing the pattern in creation and knowing the design for the monarchy does exactly the opposite. You can look at it in 2 Samuel 3 and 5. He marries many women and he takes many concubines. That's part of the backstory. Secondly, after David's affair with Bathsheba in the murder of Uriah, God promised that the sword would never depart from David's house. You can see that in 2 Samuel 12, 10. You can look at that promise from God through Nathan to David, and you can say that is God directly punishing David for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. You can look at this promise that the sword won't depart in. You can say it's not so much a punishment as it is the natural spilling out of consequences. Either way you look at it, the promise is the sword will not depart from your family. There will be unending conflict because of the things that you've introduced to your home and to the kingdom. Thirdly, David's parenting style can be summed up with one word, passivity. He's just passive. He's completely passive. We're going to see that in our passage tonight. I've given you a reference in 1 Kings 1.6. It comes much later in David's life. One of his other sons, as David is dying, a son named Adonijah, tries to do exactly what we're about to see Absalom do. He tries to take over the kingdom from David. And there's a note in 1 Kings 1.6 that says, David at no time displeased his son Adonijah by saying, why have you done thus and so? That was David's parenting style. He never at one time displeased his children, his sons, by saying, hey, maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should rethink the direction you're taking here. He was completely passive. Licato sums it up and he says, David, the Homer Simpson of biblical dads, the picture of passivity, when we ask him about his kids, he just groans. That's the background to what we're about to talk about in 2 Samuel 13 through 19. We're going to talk about the tragedy. There's absolutely no way that we can read it all, that we can track through it all, but I bet in the next week you're going to have a little bit of downtime at some point in your life. And I bet you could sit down with the Bible and you could read 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19. It wouldn't take you an incredible amount of time. We're going to hit the high points. We're going to move pretty quick. 
There's going to be places I ask you to look in your Bible, and we're going to read a few verses to catch the storyline. We're going to move through this quickly before we talk about application. Here we go. David's son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar, and Tamar's brother, full brother, Absalom, eventually murdered Amnon for raping his sister, 2 Samuel 13, 1 to 33. You may ask yourself the question we asked this last week, where would one of David's sons, Amnon, get the idea that regardless of what the Torah says, you can pursue sexual desire regardless of who it hurts or regardless of the consequences. Clearly, he learned that from his dad. And no one has any illusion that David sat down and told Amnon that's how you ought to live. But David, in the example he set with Bathsheba and Uriah, showed his son this is how it's acceptable to live. It's interesting, Amnon tricks David, he tricks Tamar, he forces himself on his half-sister. Tamar ends up living with her brother. It's not her dad who comes to her rescue. I, I wish I had an answer for why, but it's her brother. Her brother later has a daughter and he names her Tamar in honor of his sister. If you look at 2 Samuel 13, verse 21, the text says, When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. To which you and I say, well, I I imagine you were angry. I imagine that upset you. And you expect the very very next verse to say, this is what David did about it. Instead, it just says he was angry. It bothered him. He was really upset about the whole situation. But he doesn't do a thing. Absalom bides his time, just like Amnon tricked David, Absalom tricks David, and he murders his brother Amnon. Moving on, Absalom leaves Israel, and he lived in Gesher for three years. You can read about that, 2 Samuel 13, 24 to 29. Why did he go to Gesher? His father-in-law was the king of Gesher. So this is a guy who has royalty on all sides of his family. He leaves Israel, and he goes to take refuge in Gesher. David misses Absalom, to be sure. He misses his son, but he never does anything to bring him home. He feels bad about the whole situation. He wishes things were different, but he doesn't do anything about it. Look at 2 Samuel 13, verse 37 and 38. It says, Absalom fled. He went to Talmi, the son of Amihud, king of Gesher. David mourned for his son day after day. Absalom fled, and he went to Gesher, and he was there three years. Three years go by and David really doesn't do much of anything and that's where Joab steps in. Joab arranged for Absalom's return but David refused to see Absalom. 2 Samuel 14, 1 to 33. Joab puts himself in the middle of the situation. He basically takes a page out of Nathan's playbook and he sets David up with a fake story. David takes the bait And Joab responds and says, then I really think you ought to bring your son home. And David agrees. He brings his son home, but then he refuses to see him. This is not like two people living in New York City, self-quarantining, and it's relatively easy not to bump into each other. This is two people, father and son, living in the ancient city of Jerusalem that by all accounts was not particularly geographically large. It takes intentionality and effort, and for years, David refuses to see his son. 
for two years. At the end of two years, Absalom wiggles his way. It's a really funny story, but he wiggles his way into the king's presence, and they quote-unquote reconcile. They do the right thing. They say the right thing, but the die has already been cast in Absalom's heart. That brings us to this idea. Absalom spends four years planning a coup, and eventually he proclaims himself king in Hebron. So look at 2 Samuel 15. Look at verse 1. First thing he did is he gathered a posse. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. I need a group of guys. I need a, a bodyguard. I need a, a, a gang to follow me around and to be on my side. Look at verse 6. He manipulates the people. Absalom did this to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel. As the people came to David for judgment, he met them in the gate and he hugged them and he shook hands with them and he he chatted with them and he said, oh man, if only I was the king, if only I was the judge, this is how I would handle your situation. And the people bought the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. He stole their hearts from David. The long game plays off and in the end, he goes to Hebron. Why did he go to Hebron? That's where David started off as king. David started as king in Hebron. He goes to Hebron and he proclaims himself the new king. This is where it gets interesting. Rather than confront Absalom, David leaves. He just leaves. You expect the king to bring down the hammer, to lower the boom, to exercise some discipline, to bring things back into order. And instead, passivity rules and David just walks out of town. Look, if you will, at 2 Samuel 15, verse 14. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us. Quickly bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. If you look down in verse 25, some of his men try to bring the Ark of the Covenant and he says, no, leave it. Maybe I'll get to come back. Maybe I'll see it again someday. If you look at 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, it says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He's crossed the valley, leaving Jerusalem. He's going up the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he goes. He's barefoot with his head covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads. They went up weeping as they went. As he's leaving, he finds out that his most trusted advisor, Ahithophel, has betrayed him. He just jumps ship and he immediately sides with Absalom. He also finds out that his good friend Hushai wants to go with David. Hushai says, hey, I'm with you. And David says, I need you here. I need you to be my eyes and ears. I need you to be a spy. And so Hushai ends up staying. He'll play a role later. There's a man named Shimei. If you look at 2 Samuel 16, as David is leaving, Shimei is heckling David. This is what he's saying. 2 Samuel 16, 7. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. 
See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Joab hears it and says, let me go cut his head off right now. And David says, don't touch him. Just let him, let him speak. He doesn't do anything. He just runs away. At this moment, as David is walking out of the city, 13 years have passed since Nathan looked at him and said, you're the man, you're guilty of sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and the sword will not depart from your house. You understand, the consequence of that sin did not happen all immediately. Some of it happened almost immediately. Some of it was 13 years in the making. Absalom is now the king. He takes the advice of Ahithophel and he sleeps with David's concubines. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 16, 15 to 23. It's a sordid scene. He pitches a tent on, uh, on David's home and he takes these concubines so that everyone can watch. Absalom also takes the advice of Hushai. He's a spy and he does not immediately attack David. This is a critical part of the story. Ahithophel says, go right now. They're on the run. You can take him. You can kill your father. It'll all be over. The kingdom will be yours. Hushai, playing the double agent, says, your dad is as mad as a she-bear. And your dad is tough. And if you go after him, they're men of war, and they're going to slaughter you. What he should have done is listen to Ahithophel. What he does is listen to to Hushai, and this is one of the most interesting verses in the whole story, 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. Why did Absalom listen to this advisor rather than that advisor? Here's the answer. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm on Absalom. The real reason he listened to this guy and not that guy and didn't take David out when he had his chance is because God was in complete control of the whole situation. God had already ordained the good outcome in the end. That's a pretty good reminder for you and I today. That's a good reminder when planes fly into towers in New York City. Just to step back in the midst of chaos and say, God has ordained a good end for his people. That was true before those planes hit the towers. It's true after those planes hit those towers. When a a nation goes through a great recession, it's just good to stop and remind yourself, God has ordained good things for his people He has a plan. He's sovereign. He's in control. That was true before the recession started. That was true after the the recession ended. When a hurricane like Katrina or any of the others we've experienced in recent years rolls into land and destroys a city, it's good for God's people to stop and say, God is in control before the hurricane hit, after the hurricane hit. God has a plan. He's ordained good things for his people. When a virus makes the entire world terrified, and stock markets plunge, and oil prices do this, and travel is restricted, and nobody knows up from down, and you don't know which expert to believe or which expert not to believe, you just stop and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Two weeks ago, God was in complete control of this world. Today, 
He's in complete control of this world. That was true when David sat on the throne, and that was true when David walked out of his capital city weeping and crying with his close friends. In the end, Absalom dies. He's killed in battle by Joab. It's a sad story. David and his men were vastly outnumbered, but they fought in a forest, and it neutralized the military advantage. They win the battle. Absalom, if you look at 2 Samuel 18, verse 5, Absalom has been sort of set aside. 2 Samuel 18, 5, The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David says, for whatever reason, take it easy on him. It's a strange thing to say because he let him live in exile month after month after month and he didn't bring him home. And when he finally came home, he wouldn't even talk to him. He didn't even want to look at him. Now that he's taking over the kingdom, David's just running away. And when his men go to fight for him, David says, be easy on him. Be gentle with him. That's not the kind of advice Joab wanted to hear. Joab finds Absalom hanging in a tree by his hair. The Bible says he takes three javelins and throws them into Absalom's heart, and he kills him. You can see this in 2 Samuel 18, verse 19. That's when the report comes. Excuse me. If you look at uh, verse 14, 2 Samuel 18, 14. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three javelins in his hand. He thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Not exactly gentle. In the wake of that, David mourns. He mourns Absalom's death. And Joab has to rebuke his boss. David just goes into a deep depression. You can see it in 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. The king was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, he said, My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And you listen to David crying. And you, again, you come back and you say, Why are you so upset? You didn't want to be with him when he moved to Gesher. You didn't want to see him when he lived across the street. Now he runs you out of town and your men protect you in a valiant, brave battle. And all you can do is cry about the boy. I don't know how you explain it other than to say in this moment, David is realizing maybe how deeply he's failed as a father. Maybe he's looking at the situation and realizing how much time he wasted. Maybe it's regret and loss and hurt all mixed up together. In the end, Joab comes to David and he says, if you keep crying, your men are going to defect. You're shaming the army who just saved your life and your kingdom. David kind of pulls it all together. He returns to Jerusalem and he forgave his enemies. He forgives a man named Shimei, the man who cursed him. He forgives Ziba and Mephibosheth who were lying and angling against him. Okay, that's the story. Chapter 13 to chapter 19. I don't know about you, but you get through that story and you just sort of feel dirty. 
you just sort of read through all that mess and drama and conflict and hurt and pain and confusion, and you say, I need a bath in like spiritual hand sanitizer. I just feel infected. I feel like the contagion has rubbed off on me. It's just an absolute train wreck of a situation. It's tragic. It's a tragedy. But even in the tragedy, there are lessons we can learn, and I want to mention several. What are the lessons? Number one, in life we reap what we sow. In life we reap what we sow. Paul says this to the church in Galatia. You can look that up. You almost want to look at David at the end of this story and say, David, you ignored God's pattern for marriage. You ignored God's plan for the monarchy. You ignored God's command to fathers in Deuteronomy 6 to teach your children and to discipline your children. David, you brought all of these women and all of these concubines and all of this mess into your house and you never wanted to speak up against any of it and say, maybe this isn't a good idea, what you're doing now. What did you expect was going to happen? This is just the natural outcome, right? You are reaping what you've sown. Secondly, sin is like cancer. It grows, it spreads, and it kills. It grows, it spreads, and it kills. Peterson says it like this. Sin fed on sin. The rape of Tamar fed into the murder of Amnon, which fed into the hard-heartedness of David. Absalom responded to Amnon's sin by sinning. David responded to Absalom's sin by sinning. Absalom got rid of Amnon by killing him. David got rid of Absalom by shunning him. David lost his son Amnon because of the sin of Absalom. He lost his son Absalom by his own sin. It's just sin piled up on sin, piled up on sin, piled up on sin. We're going to talk about this Sunday morning when we look at the end of the story of Lazarus. Sin is like cancer, and it spreads, and it grows, and it kills. And the only way out of it is repentance. That's the only way out of the cycle. But what we're prone to think is, one more sin will get me out of the mess my sin got me in. And you just pile it up, and you pile it up, and you pile it up, and you bury yourself deeper and deeper and deeper. Third, Suffering can drive you away from God or closer to God. And I want you to look at chapter 15, 2 Samuel 15. If you've been reading through 2 Samuel and the life of David and the storyline of of what's going on, one of the things that's been missing for a good while is prayer and worship. That just hasn't been part of the storyline. It showed up earlier, but it hasn't shown up recently. And in this moment of crisis, David is walking out of Jerusalem, and for the first time in a long time, he prays. Look at 1530. He goes up the Mount of Olives. He's weeping, barefoot, head covered. The people covered their heads. They go up weeping as they went. Verse 31, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Essentially, your best friend has betrayed you. And David said... Finally, in this moment, he prays, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. It's not the greatest prayer David ever prayed. You understand that. You've read the book of Psalms. He prayed better prayers. At least he's praying. 
He hasn't done it for an awful long time. And in a crisis situation, you can move in one of two directions. You can move further from God or you can move closer to God. And look, this is a baby step for David. This is not a Psalm 23 100-yard dash, but it's at least a baby step in the right direction. And I think it's applicable for us today. We find ourselves in a day and a time of crisis. Are you going to allow that crisis to move you closer to the Lord, even if it's baby steps or all you can muster, baby steps, or are you going to allow it to drive you further away from God? That's a question for believers today. That's a question for our families today, and that's a question for our church family today. In a crisis, will you be driven away from God or will you draw closer to God? Peterson says this, Hardship brings out the best in David. Suffering, if we let it, can make us better instead of worse. Number four, succeeding in life and failing at home is failure. David, on a lot of different levels, has been a success. At home, he's a failure. And in the end, he can't escape the consequences of that. I imagine you read this story and you walk away like like I do and you think, David, why didn't you just do something? Why didn't you try to rein in the chaos? I mean, the text doesn't give us any indication that he tries to pump the brakes on any level. Maybe he was too busy with kingdom stuff. Maybe he thought he was too important and he left that to his wives or the concubines or the nannies. Maybe he felt too guilty after the sin with Bathsheba and he thought, well, who am I to try to tell anybody what to do after what I've done? We don't know exactly. Too busy, too important, too guilty, and the end is too late. Lakato says David going AWOL on his family was his greatest failure. Going AWOL on his family was his greatest failure. Next, last idea. In times of suffering, we need friends. In times of suffering, we need friends. Ahithophel, chapter 15, verse 31 is among the conspirators with Absalom. Your best friend has betrayed you. That news cut David to the heart like very few other things did in his life. He wrote two psalms about it. You can look in the book of Psalm, Psalm 3 and Psalm 55. He wrote about this feeling of betrayal. There were also friends, not just betrayal, but friends. Ittai was a friend. You go back and read the story. Ittai had just moved to town when David had to hit the road. And David starts to go, and Ittai comes along, and David says, man, you just got here. You don't have to come. And he says, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you no matter what. Zadok, Abiathar, Hushai, David's friends, they say, David, we're going to stay behind. We're going to be your eyes and ears here in the city. We're going undercover. It's going to be risky for us, but we're with you no matter what. Shobi, Makir, Barzillai, go back and read the story. David and these people leave quickly. They have nothing to eat. They're out in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, these guys show up, Shobi, Makir, Barzillai, and they say, hey, we got food. We're going to feed you. We're going to take care of you. Joab was a friend to David in this passage. 
He went to David and he did something difficult. He rebuked him for his grief over Absalom. He says, David, you got to get it together. We fought for you to save the kingdom and you're about to, to cry the whole thing away. Get it together before the men desert you. These guys were friends. Chuck Swindoll says this, Friendship is where we find the hands of God ministering, encouraging, giving, and supporting through relatively unknown heroes of the faith. Nobodies like Ittai the Gittite, Zadok, Abiathar, Hushai, Shobi, Makir, Barzillai, and Joab. In a time of uncertainty, in a time of suffering, you need friends. And yes, you pray, God, take care of me. God, provide for me. That doesn't always look like manna being dropped down from heaven. Sometimes it looks like Barzillai bringing bread out to the wilderness so you can eat. I know I've been encouraged in the last couple of days, people at this church, people in this town, people I know that don't live here in Odessa, just friends who are willing to be encouraging and say, hey, we're praying for you. We're with you. Hang in there. I need that. You need that. Yes, you look to God for deliverance and help, but you understand that sometimes that help comes through friends.